I'm going to throw out some numbers and you tell me whether or not they mean anything to you. Um, this could be dangerous. But <laughs> uh, 1776. No, a year? That's just a year? <laughs> nope. Nope. I have no idea what that number means. Nope. Nope. Um, okay. So, right? Like, I think that that's a significant year at least, right? The year you graduated high school. 1776. <laughs> wow, damn, Tom. That's like impressive. 1776. All right, cool. Good, good. <laughs> um, oh, come on, right? I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, all right, good, good, good. So, <laughs> no, I really don't. That could be true, you know. Um, what about 82863? 82863. Linda's like, that was one of my best nights ever. Had a great date on that night. <laughs> Met my first husband then. <laughs> 82863 to these dates? It's the... I had a dream speech, right? Okay. How about this is an easy one. This will be an easy one. How about 9-11? Right? This is significant. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, that's all you have to say. Like, with some of these terms, I mean, particularly the 1776 and the 9-11, maybe for some, for some certainly, 82863. I mean, they would know what it is right off the bat if it had a lot of significance for, um, for your life in the immediate moment. And certainly, though, 9-11 for us, I mean, it conjures up a lot. But then there's some more, you know, there's some other dates that probably should um, strike a chord with us, like 930, 722, 586, 538, 122. Any of those mean anything to you? Well, <laughs> what? Cat knows some of them, for sure. Some of you guys, I know some of you guys know the significance of some of these dates, especially like the 722 and 586. They're years, B.C. All right, all right. Well, hold on. I was supposed to do this first. I have a reading. I have a reading for you all. And by the way, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to read this. This is, what's that? Uh, don't, don't give it away. Okay, now I don't even have to preach. Cats has done it for me. <laughs> okay. I have a reading from Isaiah chapter 49, 1 through 16, and I would like to pray once again before I read this. So, Heavenly Father, I just want to praise you and thank you for this night, for the things that you're doing in our community, for the things that you're doing in our own lives, in our own hearts, and in our own minds. Thank you for restoring us, for giving us hope, for giving us your life, for loving us, for caring about us, and just be be here present with us tonight, Lord Jesus, as we talk about some things to do with the history of your involvement in this world. We praise you and we thank you. Amen. Isaiah 49, 1 through 16. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He had spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me 
is in the Lord's hands, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out and those in darkness Be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. I want to start, I've already kind of started this message, but I want to start this message with, a, with an apology. But it's not an apology like as in like I'm sorry, although that might be necessary as well. I don't know, you guys can tell me at the end of it. I don't mean that kind of an apology. I mean an explanation and a defense of what I am going to do because I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight and I hope that it's not boring to you because typically I'm like all animated and excited and bouncing around and kind of stuff like that, right? But it might feel a little bit more like a teaching lecture hall for a little while tonight. So just bear with me with that. But the thing is, is we have a, we have a problem. We have a lot of problems. I've got problems. <laughs> you all have problems. I know some of your problems. You guys probably know my problems too. But we have like this problem just in the church in the West where we just have no clue about the life of Jesus. Right? There's a lot of things we don't have a clue about, but we don't have a clue concerning the life of Jesus. Like what was going on in the history during the time of Jesus? What was going on politically? What was going on religiously? What was happening? Like that's the context in which the scriptures were written. We have to have a clue of what's going on. So that maybe we can translate it into today's time, today's age, today's situations. It seems that we've like spiritualized everything so much 
We've separated it from the real-life situations of Jesus so that we seem to have no way to connect Jesus' life and teaching with, with what goes on in the world around us. I mean, I hope that we do a little bit better job of that around here at Gather. Like, I hope. And, and certainly, if you come to the Bible studies on Thursday night or Tuesday afternoons, if you're able to make either of those times, we, we talk about some of the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight. But in preparation for this message, I'm like, I've got to just... Some of y'all aren't able to make it for that. And so we just have to do some of this tonight on a, on a Saturday night. I mean, we have... We have a lot of stuff that's going on that you get to read about online every day, right? <laughs> Facebook and Twitter, and I have tons of friends at this point that have just like, I'm done. I'm done with that. Some of the things and some of the scripture that I hear people quoting taken entirely out of context to, to just justify some preconceived ideas is just drives me crazy. And in part, that I know we are all susceptible to that because we all have our own stories. We all have our own orientation toward things, even to the history, some of the history we're going to talk about tonight. But like, we have to try really hard to set aside our, our own hermeneutic, our own life experiences, our own shallow views of what might have been happening in the past and try and learn more about the history, try and learn more about what was going on in Jesus' day and in the time prior. That we could even come to understand the least bit of what I just read from Isaiah, right? Because it has to do with some of those dates that we just threw out there, those, not all, their years really, that 937, 22, 586 stuff, right? I mean, we have problems that we are facing as peoples, and I'm not talking like individual people, but like nations, groups of people who have been united. But when we become united, sometimes we also become kind of tribal. And what I mean by that is that like, we become united and then we separate off every other group of people from another place, from another time, from another country. We've embraced a mentality where we can watch out for our own tribe, and that's about it. I mean, you guys know how it works, right? Because it even happens like in high school sports. <laughs> you've got the Rochester Warriors and the Centralia Tigers and the Chehalis Bearcats, right? they got a weird, weird logo for their mascot, by the way. That's like really a strange thing. <laughs> I, know, I know, I'm sorry, there's not many of you from Chehalis here, but that was like a big deal a couple of, like, a year ago, right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yep. Exactly, right? Love you too, man. See you later. It's easy, you even see it like in Little League even, where like parents become so rooted to the team and that their kid is on, they're willing to fight parents on other teams. It, it happens on that level, and then it, it, it of course happens, unfortunately, much even probably to a greater negative impact as nations start to do the same kind of thing with a real tribal mentality. We begin to ask questions like, who can be excluded from our having to care? Who is outside of my responsibility to love? It's a tribal kind of mentality that says, as we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, who is my neighbor? Who asks that question with the intention on excluding a few folks? Right? 
Jesus lived in a time of great turmoil. Great political turmoil, great religious turmoil. He lived in a time that was highly tribal. First of all, I want to give us a little bit of a a geography lesson, historical geography lesson. And and this is where I'm going to blow this thing, right? Because you guys recognize what this is, right? Yeah, that's that's gather church, right? So that's like literally, right? Not literally. That would be to say the wrong thing. We're we're like right there right now, right? So I want to talk about I want to talk about not just where we are right now, but I want to talk about the the, the promised land, the land of Israel, right? So I know that most of you could probably find it on a map. Can you guys picture, do many of you know where the promised land is, where the holy land is? Can you picture it on a map? It's a tiny little chunk of land. It's really small. It's eight to 9,000 square miles. That's approximately the size of Clallam, Jefferson, Grays Harbor, Pacific, Wakayakum counties combined. So you just take like the majority of, the, of western Washington, about a little over half of it, all the way down the coast, and that's the size that we're talking about, eight to 9,000 square miles. I said feet, didn't I? Eight to 9,000 square, square miles. It's not a very big chunk of land that has gotten an awful lot of attention, still gets an awful lot of attention. To begin with, after the Israelites wandered around in the desert, in the wilderness, after being delivered out of Egypt, they enter into the promised land and slowly conquer and take territories. And then they became, they were a united, we're skipping a lot of history, they became a united kingdom. There was one, one kingdom. King David was the one who had this vision for having a capital, taking care of the leadership from one facility, from one area. So that's the, that's the territory of the United Kingdom. You can see like the body of water down low is the Dead Sea. And up there, high up, is the Sea of Galilee. So a lot of the ministry of Jesus took place in the sea of Gal- around the Sea of Galilee. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But unfortunately, in 930 BC, this once united kingdom became a divided kingdom. Israel and Judah. And the boundaries, for what it's worth, were always kind of in flux, changing. It wasn't as defined as it is, like between Washington and Oregon or something like that, or even the United States and Mexico, or in Canada. We don't care about that border, though, do we? They're nice up there. So, on the left side, this idea, this divided kingdom. Why? Why was the kingdom of Israel, the people of God, why did they become divided? Let's just say for now it was over political conflict. Two kings who had very similar names that couldn't get along, and so they divided the kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel had the capital of Samaria. And ten of the twelve tribes of Israel were represented. The tribes of Asher and Dan and Ephraim and Gad and Ishtar and Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, and Zebulun. Those were the tribes of the northern kingdom. And then they had the tribe of the tribes of the southern kingdom. There were two. Anybody know the last two? Judah and Benjamin. Yeah. So there were two kingdoms in the south then, right? So this is where things get really, really interesting. The northern kingdom falls as a nation, as a people. 
They fall, they were conquered, and this is one of those years, 722 B.C. So that's, that's partic- particularly, that's when Samaria was destroyed. And the citizens were exiled, and its territories were repopulated at the hands of Assyria. Assyria is who conquered them. And this is all talked about in the Old Testament. A lot of detail about it. A lot of controversy about some of that detail. But the way that they did this, when like a country like Assyria came in and destroyed people, they like took their leadership away. They took anybody that was powerful away. They took anybody that had any leadership ability, any strength, any, any military might, and they just took them away. They just took them away. Golly. The queen of Assyria right there. <laughs> Taking away poor little Eli. Not one of the tribes, but hey. So they, they, they took them away and they brought in their own forms of religion because they put their own people in place in the northern kingdom then too. They took away a lot of the powerful people and Assyria brought in a lot of the folks that were their citizens. Well, and then of course, the southern kingdom wasn't too far behind. By the way, if you are interested in, in uh, 2 Kings 17... You can read some detail about what it looked like for Assyria to bring their own people in, to bring their own religion in, to bring their own power structures into the northern kingdom. But then it was in 586, after Babylon had conquered Assyria in 622, that in 586 they came and sacked the southern kingdom of Israel, which we usually call it that, but it was called Judah, named after one of the two tribes. The citizens, of course, in that context, too, were exiled, and its territory was repopulated, at least in part, with Babylonians. But unlike the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, in 538, approximately, was restored. Babylon was conquered by Persia, so the people that had conquered the southern kingdom, who had earlier conquered Assyria, who had earlier conquered... All right, I'll get it back up in a minute. It's all right. There we go. They fell at the hands of... Anybody know? Yeah, Persia, Cyrus, the Messiah, believe it or not, the anointed one. Not the anointed one, but an anointed one. So he, after destroying the Babylonian Empire, he allowed the former inhabitants of the southern kingdom to return to the southern kingdom if they wanted to. Which gave rise to what some of you may have heard before as the second temple period. Has anybody heard of the... And I'm really sorry, I really feel bad about maybe potentially boring some of you. But I really don't at the same time. And I really, really, there is going to be a test later. So it's going to... Right? There you go. Oh, thanks, Jenna. I appreciate that. Yeah. We'll, we'll hopefully get a little bit more interesting. I never said I was interesting. So. Good. Thank you. Thank you. See somebody, Jenna. I'm just... Right? 
so the second temple period, you could read about it in Esther and Zechariah and Haggai. Esther is where most people go to to read about some of what happened with the people being able to return home. And, and of course, the southern kingdom people that were primarily these two tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel, they wanted to get back and rebuild the temple because when they were sacked by Babylon, Babylon took Jerusalem and tore the temple down to its foundation. And so they went back and they wanted to rebuild it because to be a good Jew, you needed to be able to sacrifice. To be a good Israelite, you needed to be able to sacrifice. You needed to have that place to be able to sacrifice animals to your God, as well as grain and many other things. You, you needed to have that there. They were very lost when it came to how they were going to worship Yahweh in Babylon. Very lost without having a temple to worship in, to sacrifice in. And so it's one of the first things that they wanted to do. So we're skipping a lot of detail here. But the Hasamian dynasty took over. And you can read about the Hasamian dynasty in uh, the Apocrypha, the non-canonical writings that are sometimes included in some of your Bibles. If you have a Catholic Bible, oftentimes there's still, it's still in there. And the, the Apocrypha, the first and second Maccabees is where you would want to go in particular to read the most detail about this. And, and for what it's worth is, again, I'm not sorry if I'm boring you, because if you're going to read your Bible with, with any, any, any wisdom, you need to know some of this stuff. You really, really do. Be cautious in your, in your reading if you don't have a grasp on a little bit of this. Seriously. Especially if you're going to chime in on stuff on Facebook. <laughs> so the Hasamian dynasty in 140 all the way to 37 B.C., ruled that area, kind of. And they enlarged the temple. They made it bigger. And then, of course, it was enlarged even more and embellished even more by Herod the Great. And now, all of a sudden, we're all the way to the New Testament, right? You can just see the Gospels, if you want to know, about the Herodian dynasty and Herod the Great. And then, the temple itself was destroyed again in 70. Yeah, between 66 and 70 A.D. So I want to I talk more about this, though. I want to go back a little bit in this story, because here we have these two kingdoms, right? Judah and Israel. And everybody that's come back at this point and is reestablishing themselves in the promised land, they're all, they're all from Judah. So what about the other ten tribes? What about the rest of the people that were part of of the northern kingdom. Does anybody know who those people are in the New Testament? The Samaritans. The Samaritans, the people that are inhabiting the territories of the northern kingdom. They were, they were thought of by the people of the southern kingdom as despised. They didn't like them at all. Going back to 2 Kings 17... They were half-breeds. They were people that were defiled with Assyrians. They were people that had mixed religious practices. They represented the people that had conquered. Even though it was a northern part of the kingdom, they were people that represented folks that had conquered some of their tribes. And the people that remained, again, were these people that had intermarried with these Assyrian folks. They didn't like how mixed up all this stuff was. The Samaritans represented just a mixed people. 
differing religious agendas, differing forms of worship. Shoot, they didn't even have a temple to worship in, right? They had different political agendas. So when you think Samaritan, think people that are dwelling in that territory that used to be part of the promised land. It's into this kind of a situation that Jesus walks. And that's just a very cursory look at some of that history. Very cursory. A lot of bad blood, a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of tribalism, a lot of hatred for Assyrians and Babylonians, a lot of hatred for people potentially that were at least part of those northern ten tribes. Jesus walks in to this climate, right? But Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, if the other map was working, I could show you more. It's in Judah. It's in the southern kingdom. That's where he's born. He was born in Judah, but he wasn't, he wasn't from there. Where was he from? Oh, you get Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. He is from Galilee. Well, where's, where's Galilee? Galilee's all the way up there. So you have the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, and then Galilee. What in the world is Galilee? Galilee used to be part of the northern kingdom. It was believed that that northern territory, after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, was basically kind of left uninhabited, not repopulated too much. Now, there are probably people who live there. You could probably be more appropriate to just say it wasn't very governed. There was just a bunch of people, like, living off the grid up there, right? It was sometime during one, around 122, under the Hasamian dynasty, that people from the southern kingdom were relocated up to the northern kingdom. Apparently, during the Hasamian dynasty, the, the Maccabees overtook that area and started sending people up there to live. But in, in, so when, when you hear the stories of like Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth, but having to go to where he's from, where Joseph is from, having to go to Bethlehem. He was probably, his family at some point, where some of those families transplanted up there to Galilee. They went down to Bethlehem, they went to Egypt, they came back, and apparently they went back home to Nazareth, to Galilee. But Galileans, imagine this, weren't very highly thought of themselves. They weren't quite Samaritans. But they weren't very highly thought of because they were so far from the temple. How could they really be that great of people, right? We, we, know, that, we know that they had an identifiable dialect, right? During the time that Jesus was arrested and being betrayed, and some of his disciples, are, they're, rec- they're outside. Well, Jesus is being tried, and people recognize their, vo- their, their, their dialect as, as Galileans. There was some kind of like a southern kingdom snobbery, right? That we're close to Jerusalem. It's, it's probably not unlike people from the south around here, right? Like people that can't even talk right. They can't be that sophisticated and intelligent, right? Of the United States, you know what I'm talking about? I, guess. I can't even do a southern drawl, so I'm not even going to try. That's right. 
So the, the Galileans, they were not highly thought of. They were intended by their dialect. I mean, sorry, identifiable by their dialect. And they, they just weren't very respected. So, okay, bear with me, please. People had to travel at least three times a year if they were going to be good Jews from Galilee, if you were living there, all the way down to Jerusalem. Three primary feasts, okay? There were three major ways to get there. Three main routes. There was one that was a direct route. It was about 75 miles. And it went through Samaria. Can you guys see that? Yep, that would be that line, right? The blue one, the purplish-blue one, if you can see it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? And then there was the coastal route. That was about 125 miles. And then there was the inland route that ties in with the first part of the straight-through-Samaria route until you get to, guess what, Samaria itself when you made a hard left-hand turn and then found another way down. So does anybody have any idea why they would do that? Well, Samaria is that whole territory. So they typically just tried to avoid Galilee. Sorry, people traveling from Galilee tried to avoid Samaria. They would, they would take extra multiple days. It was five to seven day trip. You could maybe do it straight through in three but think about that. Think about like walking almost all the way to Portland from here, how long it would take if you were just walking. And you didn't have great roads. You didn't have like high-top tennis shoes or hiking boots. You might have had a donkey maybe, but even at that, you pro- probably not. So 75-mile walk. Maybe you could get it done in three days, but it's typically five to seven. If you took... Oh, look at his back. All right, praise God. If you, if you took the coastal route, you're, you're looking at almost almost doubling the amount of time. If you took the more inland route, you would, you would add like two days to your trip. But people, because they so despised the Samaritans, they were willing, they were willing to, to do that. So there was so much unrest in this territory at the time. Josephus, who is a very politically motivated, if you will, um, first century historian, recounts, the killing of Jews that entered Samaria, and then the retaliation of Jewish guerrillas who went back and attacked Samaritans. Like, there was just a lot of bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. And to just add a level of confusion, so just stop and think about that for a minute, okay? You had, you had a united kingdom of Israel that's separated into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is destroyed by another country, Assyria. And then later on, the lower portion of that kingdom now divided that is only the only part of it that even remains is, is, is defeated by the people that defeated the people that conquered your friends up north. And now you are re, reestablishing your land, reestablishing the temple, You're going through hundreds of years of history, trying to be God's people trying to live out the promises that you believe that God has offered you. You're blaming just about everybody you can blame for the problems that you're having because that's how we kind of seem to roll. 
And you're blaming the Samaritan people who are these supposed like half-breed folks that are half Assyrian, half of the ten, half the other part, somebody of the ten tribes of Israel that came before you. So you 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 despise the people so much that you'll turn a three to five day trip into a, a seven to ten day trip just so you don't have to walk through their 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 land. And then if you do, maybe you'll get killed by them because they don't care for you much either. And or if they do, maybe you'll kill them back after they kill you, right? I mean, this is the kind of, this is kind of, and then to just like, this is, this is already complicated enough, but to make it just a little bit more complicated, by Jesus' day, we had this thing called Roman occupation. You weren't, you weren't, even the people of the southern kingdom down here, they, they weren't even really free. I mean, their king was more like a puppet for the Roman Empire doing what the Rome, Roman government wanted them to do. So they weren't really free anyway. So this is the world that Jesus walks into. You have Jews returning from exile, inhabiting portions of the southern kingdom, rebuilding the temple, reestablishing worship of Yahweh, trying to figure out how to be God's people. To the north, you have these despised Samaritans, people that were formerly of the northern kingdom. And then you have these people in Galilee that are kind of like Jews from the southern, from the southern kingdom living in the northern kingdom. People who are sent to inhabit it. These Galileans, they too are kind of like they're acceptable, but they're looked down upon by other Jews nearer Jerusalem. A lot, of, a lot of tribalism going on here. All of those territories anyway are still ro- occupied by Roman rule. And it's not just Jesus is a Galilean, right? Like, think about that. Stop and just like think about that for a second. So like, you're already have a couple shots against you concerning your status amongst the people when you travel to Jerusalem the three times a year. You're a, you're a stinky Galilean. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It wasn't just Jesus. Actually, 11 of the 12 disciples were from Galilee. Does anybody know the one that wasn't? Judas Iscariot. Judas is, yeah, I know, right? You got to watch out for those people that aren't from Galilee. So just, just like try, and I know I didn't do a great job of explaining all this. I'm going to blame it on my technology. But just, just try and, and, and wrap your mind around this for a second, particularly just this. You got Jerusalem and the temple all the way down south. You get Samaria, these despised people. It used to be kind of part of who you were, and then up to the north, and then you have Galilee farther up there, and then you got people traveling back and forth. And you're just like looking down on each other, partly blaming one another for all the problems that you have. And the whole time you have Rome looking over your shoulder, somebody telling you what you can and can't do, somebody taking money from you, taking your taxes from you opposing you, oppressing you. He just had a lot of turmoil, a lot of distrust, a lot of hatred. 
a lot of concern for how in the world things were going to be put right again. Because you had these promises that God was going to save you. You had these promises that God was going to do something about this situation, but this is the junk that you have to deal with. You have promises all the way back in Isaiah, straight away. God is going to restore his people. He's going to put his spirit in us. He's going to transform his people. He's going to reestablish his people. And it's not going to be good enough, as I read earlier, for God to just reestablish the people of Israel. He wants Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, to the whole world. The whole world is going to know how great God is, and this is the mess that they're in. This is the mess that then Jesus comes to, that he walks into, that he ministers in. And I promise this will get more interesting as the weeks progress. But this is the name of this series that I'm kicking off tonight. And it will not have that much information packed in the front end of it, I promise, in the weeks to come. But again, I'm, remember, I'm defending it, not apologizing, saying I'm sorry. But this is the name of the series. It's a short series on the long travels of Jesus in Galilee through Samaria. Or also, I could title it, What do we have to learn about how to deal with people the world despises from Jesus on his travels through despised territories? What do we have to learn about how to deal with people that the world despises from journeying with Jesus on his travels through despised territory? Because Jesus goes through Samaria. He doesn't just go around Samaria. He went through Samaria. He was from Galilee. Again, he was already somebody that wasn't really respected. And then he travels through Samaria. Some of the other things that I see that Jesus does as he's on these travels is he like, he doesn't do the religious talk thing. Like, right? When he's going through Galilee, when he's going through Samaria, he just has like regular conversations with regular old people. Because all the high and lofty God talk just doesn't cut it when you're talking with a bunch of people that the rest of the world, particularly the religious world, despises. Oh, I'm feeling quite spiritual today and extremely sanctified in my resurrected form. And I shall wonder... I mean, it's like, come on, man. Jesus just gets really real with people. He, he talks with people on their levels. He... He talks in parables where he uses manure, right? He talks about, as Mitch talked, about coins, about lost things, about the struggles of life, just using metaphors that connect with what goes on in our lives every day. Jesus didn't seem to share the highly negative view of Samaritans that many Jews did. Maybe it was because, in part, He was despised in some sense because he was a Galilean. Maybe it was just because he knew people. Maybe it was because he loved people. I'm almost done for today. And I hope you come back the next few weeks. No, no, not because this was boring. No, no, you're understanding me wrong. Because I really do want to, I really want to talk about this. I really, really do. Like, it honestly, it, it, a little part of me dies when I think about just going over a little historical stuff like that in a church setting. Because it really does. Like, that's a lot of stuff to just try and, all those dates and all those experiences. I, I get it. Like, that can be kind of boring. I know. But again, like, 
we could do so well in understanding how to respond to some of the junk that goes on in our culture and our communities and our world today if we understood a little bit more about Jesus' world. We really, really, really would do well. So I really don't care that it's a little bit boring. And maybe I'll consult Stein's uh, notes next time. I still have them. So let me, let me just read. With that in your mind... With the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, the return of the southern kingdom, the Samaritans in the north and Galilee way up north. With all that in mind, just, just let, me, let me read something for you. And I think you're going to get maybe a little bit about what I'm talking about, how this informs how we understand our text. It's from Luke chapter 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's in Galilee. He's got to get to Jerusalem. Where does he have to go? South. Through through Samaria or around Samaria? Matter of fact, this time he seems as though he's going to go around Samaria. But he will go through Samaria. So as the time approached, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. As he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But... The people there did not welcome him. So Jesus sends people into Samaria to get some things ready so that when he gets there, he has a place to be. They went into the Samaritan village, but the people there did not welcome him. Why? Because he was headed for Jerusalem. Oh, you're one of those kind of Galileans. You're going to Jerusalem. I don't think we want you here because we don't like you kind of Jews. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, you guys know what they asked, right? Some of you I know do, Lord, may we rain down fire on them. Right? These sons of bees, rain down fire on these half-breeds. Let's take care of them. They don't even like us. Let's put them down. Right? I know that you have that kind of power. Your father does. He's got that kind of power. We know the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's do that to him. Rain down some fire. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, first let me go bury my dead father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts the hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus doesn't seem right now, right here, to go through Samaria, but he will. And he certainly has something to say about the Samaritans. He did not share the perspective that James and John shared. And then he has these three encounters with people that are wanting to follow him, or that he calls to follow him. And they all have excuses for why they can't quite do it yet. I wonder if maybe they didn't have an idea that Jesus already was intending to go through Samaria. And so they came up with reasons to not go. Are you willing to follow Jesus? 
Are you willing to follow Jesus into Samaria? Because we have a lot of modern-day Samaritans, right? We have a lot of modern-day Samaritans, a lot of people that we've said, I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're despised, rejected, they're gross, I I can't stand them. I don't want to go near them. Those are the very people that Jesus doesn't have a problem going to. Are you willing to follow Jesus on his way? Are you willing to, to go to the Samaritans of today? Maybe it's people that you have a personal history with, or maybe it's people that we have a a national history with. Are we willing to go to Samaria? Are we willing to go to Afghanistan? Are we willing to go to Iraq? Are we willing to go to (laughs) Shehalis? Are we willing to go to the least of these, the broken? Are we willing to go to the prostitutes, the drug addicts? The people who have unfortunately been highly victimized by a seemingly, supposedly prosperous country. A people who maybe were once a people, but they're not a people anymore. People that once had a family, and they don't have a family anymore. Are we willing to go to them? Are we willing to follow Jesus and go to them? Are you willing to go to people who just are unsavory in your eyes, and not only do you not, and we'll talk about this parable in a minute, that again, if I, not in a minute, sorry, in a couple of days, we're almost done. In a couple of weeks. Are you willing to go to people that require you to risk to love? The parable of the Good Samaritan? It's like an oxymoron in Jesus' day. To think of a Samaritan as in any way good, and yeah, he's not called actually good in the story. But he is the good guy in the story. And not only did he not walk around the whole territory to avoid a Jew, that's what the other Jewish people were doing. He went over to the ditch straight to where this Jewish guy was to care for him. I just, I'm trying to give you a little morsel to go on so you come back next week. (laughs) Okay. Because this stuff is, a, it's, a, it's again, like I can't tell you enough how big of a deal this is. How big of a deal it is in how we understand the state of our, of our affairs today. The state of how Jesus challenges us and informs how we're going to live our lives as people who say we follow him. Are we willing to do these kinds of things? Are we willing to risk, make this kind of risk for the people that... Maybe even are people that we say have hurt us at some point in our life. And I'm not just talking about this spiritualized personal stuff. I'm talking about a people group, nations. Are we, are we willing? This is a radical kind of challenge that the gospel calls us to. All right. I've bored you long enough. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I just thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your patience with me. I just pray, Father, that you would would wake us up and that you would help us to understand that these scriptures have history. That you, Jesus, walked not just into the world, but you walked into a particular time and place. And that we need to try and wrap our minds around what that time and place was like so that we can better understand the things that you did so we can better understand the way that you loved, for the, we, we can better understand the kind of challenging things that you call us to 
as your people. We need you to inspire us. We need you to change our minds. We need you to give us wisdom. We need you to give us knowledge. Forgive us that we just sometimes blow this and are too busy goofing off and don't take the time to really learn. Forgive us, Father. You've given us so much information, so much knowledge, so much potential for that to become true wisdom. And I know, Jesus, it is is challenging to submit ourselves, surrender ourselves to you and really want to learn this stuff. But help us. We need you so much. We need you to teach us. We love you so much, Father. Amen.